Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 2 is where we will be this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be a white paperback Bible underneath one of the chairs in front of you. should be fairly nearby. You can grab one of those. Revelation is the last book of the Bible, so just kind of turn back to the far right end of the Bible, and you should find the book of Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 we'll be looking at today. Um, Last year, you might remember that the very first Sunday of the year, I gave what I called a state of the church sermon, and I announced at that time that this would be something that we would be doing on an annual basis. At the first Sunday of every year, I would take some time to kind of assess, evaluate kind of the state of the church. Um, Last year, the focus was on new life as a congregation. This year, I'm going to broaden this and Um, give some ideas about the church in general, the church more broadly, the evangelical church, just assessing where the church is and what we might want to anticipate in the future. And the way that um, we're going to do this, and the way this started last year, was looking at one of these churches that Jesus speaks to in the book of Revelation. So in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, Jesus takes time to speak to seven different local congregations, just like New Life, like a congregation in Yorktown. Well, Jesus spoke to congregations in various cities. Last year we looked at the congregation in Ephesus, verses one through seven in chapter two. And um, today we'll be looking at Jesus' words to a church in a city called Smyrna, which is in verses eight through 11. Smyrna was a a very beautiful, sophisticated city. Uh, It's in modern-day Turkey. There is a city there actually now called Izmir. Um, It's not Smyrna anymore. It's called Izmir, and there's about 3 million people in that city. And at the time um, that Smyrna received this letter and these words from Jesus, Smyrna was a city that practiced the worship of the emperor, and so they built a temple to worship the Roman emperor. And so Smyrna was not by any means a Christian city. It was a very non-Christian, pre-Christian place, a place even with some hostility to Christianity. And that gives some commonality with us because we live in a culture, um, as you probably know, and as you've heard me talk about from time to time, that seems to not be so friendly to Christianity. We don't really live in a Christian culture anymore. And so that causes us or calls us as Christians to think um, a little more carefully about the situation that we're in and about what the future might be for us. So um, there's a guy named Rod Dreher who has written a book a couple years ago uh, giving kind of an evaluation of the church. And I'm going to quote him for you because he says something here that's, that's a little bit startling. Um, Here's what he writes. He says, we Christians in the West are facing our own thousand-year flood. Now, a thousand-year flood is just what that sounds like, a flood, a kind of a natural disaster that comes along not very often, just every thousand years, a very unique and potentially cataclysmic event. Dreher says, we're facing a thousand-year flood now. The light of Christianity is flickering out all over the West. 
By the West, he means basically America and Europe, not the entire world, but in the West. There are people alive today who may live to see the effective death of Christianity within our civilization. Now, that's not the death of the church. The, the church will never die. <laughs> and Jesus has promised the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. But he's talking about within our civilization, within the West, we may see the death of Christianity. For a long time, we've downplayed or ignored the signs, but now the floodwaters are upon us. And what Dreher says here is, we are not ready. Are, are you ready? for what is to come. Now, I'm not a soothsayer. I don't have a crystal ball. I cannot tell the future. So I don't know what's gonna happen. And a lot of people have criticized Rod Dreher and others who say things like this. You know, there's always a doomsday prophet saying the sky is falling, right? I mean, that's true. There's always some negative guy trying to say these really pessimistic things that discourage us. But um, it doesn't necessarily mean that what they're saying is wrong, though. And although I can't tell the future, and I, I don't know what will happen, as your pastor, I do feel a responsibility, and the elders here do also, a responsibility to prepare you guys and get you ready as best as we can as we look ahead and anticipate what might be on the horizon for us. And in my judgment, we are entering into and have already entered into an unprecedented time in the life of the church in the West and in America in particular. And this letter to the church in Smyrna provides us some help for the very specific place we find ourselves um, in the church in 2019. So please stand now for the reading of God's word. I'm going to read verses 8 through 11, Revelation 2. Jesus' words to the church in Smyrna. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. God, we call on you by your Spirit to open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, Rod Dreher says we're not ready. Maybe you have a different opinion on that. Um, I, I tend to sympathize with his assertion that perhaps we're not ready for what is coming. So how do we get ready? Just, just two things that I want to share with you today that are found in the text. Um, and, and the two things are this. The first thing is this. In order for us to be ready with what's going to happen in the future and where we're headed is that the church must commit itself to faithful discipleship. Committed, loyal, devoted, faithful discipleship. If you look here at the end of the passage, verses 10 and 11, we're going to pick up at the end, we'll go back to the beginning, but at the verse, end of verse 10, Jesus says this, Be faithful unto death. 
be faithful unto death. Now, this is significant because, uh, again, in the city of Smyrna, um, there was very regular and common worship of the Roman emperor, a temple built up to this guy, and in fact, Christianity as a religion was illegal in Smyrna at the time. The Jews were allowed to freely worship as they wished, but not Christians, and Christians were not considered to be part of the Jewish religion, and so the practice of Christianity was illegal, and a refusal to worship the emperor could be punishable by execution. And so that's the context in which Jesus is saying this. He's saying, be faithful unto death. Be faithful to whom? Be faithful to Jesus. Don't be faithful to the emperor. Don't be faithful to the gods and the idols of your culture, but be faithful to Jesus. And the promise for those who do that is what is called the crown of life there in verse 10. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. That word for crown is also used to describe like a wreath or a trophy that is sometimes given to the winner of an athletic event like you might see in the Olympics and the person is awarded and stands before the other competitors and receives this crown wreath or trophy. And the one who is victorious in this passage is the one who is faithful unto death, faithful to the end, the one who clings to Jesus until the very end, even in the face of whatever hostility and pressures he or she might face. You receive the crown of life when you're faithful to the end. Now, let me just kind of give some theological observations here. We teach this and we believe this. The Bible does say in many places that the salvation of the Christian is secure, right? The Bible says over and over things like he will sustain you to the end, that God will finish what he has started in you. Jesus has said that I will lose none of all that the Father has given me. God does not revoke the salvation he gives to you. He doesn't grant you forgiveness of sins and then see that you've done something bad and cancel it. That's not the way God works. But that does not diminish the necessity and need for all Christians to strive and fight and be faithful throughout their whole life. The promise of God's preservation of his people is not an excuse for Christians to be complacent and lazy in their discipleship. To say things like, well, my salvation is secure, therefore I guess it doesn't matter if I read my Bible or if I pray or if I go to church because I'm secure. Both of these things are taught in the scriptures, and in fact, we see other passages like this in Colossians 1, it says, he, Jesus, has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith. That's a little bit of a startling phrase, isn't it? Stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. I mean, it is possible for people to profess to believe in Jesus and then they, they fall away, right? Um, here's what uh, Jesus says in the parable of the sower. Um, uh, actually, I'm gonna give that to you later because I got two other things to say here before then. Um, so, the fact that your salvation is preserved does not negate your responsibility to be faithful. So one of the things I did in preparation for this sermon 
is I contacted a number of pastors that I know in our presbytery, in our denomination, and in this community, pastors I know and, and trust and um, respect. And I asked them th- this question. I, I said, what are some issues that you believe the church needs to face in the next five to 10 years? What, what are some issues that you think will present challenges to the church and that the church needs to be prepared to address? And many of the answers that they gave had to do with discipleship. Basic discipleship issues. And so here are some things that they said, kind of a summary of a number of things. Worldliness among Christians. That the lives of Christians sometimes reflect the world more than they reflect the teaching of Scripture. Rampant consumerism. Finding our identity in the things that we own. Always thinking about the next thing to buy. Constantly pining away for more things and material possessions. Narcissistic self-absorption. Narcissism is kind of a view that you are the center of the universe. That everything should revolve around you and that you have a right to get what you want. Narcissism and self-absorption are kind of mean basically the same thing. Narcissistic self-absorption, even among Christians... Rejection of the biblical view of sexuality. Very common in the culture, but even in the church now. Um, a, a, a renewed acceptance of gay marriage and transgenderism and, and those kinds of issues that are very prevalent in our culture. And people leaving the local church. And in particular, they mentioned millennials leaving the local church and the struggle that the church has experienced in Um, appealing to and maintaining the millennial population. All of these things are obstacles to faithfulness. These are things that pastors are saying you will be facing if you haven't already, if we're going to grow and mature as Christ followers and be faithful to the end, these are things that we should be concerned about. Now, the promise in the passage here is that the final result for those who are faithful to the end, according to verse 11, is this. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then he says, the one who conquers, it's just another way of saying the one who's faithful, the one who remains steadfast to the end, will not be hurt by the second death. The second death. So, you know, Revelation has some symbolic and kind of cryptic language, but if you look back in Revelation 20, 14, it's very clear. It just says the second death is the lake of fire. The lake of fire. I mean, the final resting place at the final judgment, the place where God will send the devil and all of his followers to remain in torment forever. The final death, and what is promised here is that those who are trusting in Christ and who are faithful to the end will not have to face that lake of death. You will not be hurt by that. You will be freed by that. You will not face that condemnation because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that's the problem. That's the blessing. Be faithful and you don't face the lake of death. But being faithful is not necessarily so easy. And so here's what Jesus says. In Matthew 13, as I was mentioning earlier, the parable of the sower. Do you know this parable where Jesus is going out and he's spreading, uh, he's talking about a farmer who is spreading seed in, in the field. 
And he says the seed falls on all these different kinds of ground. And he talks about the seed, he actually says the seed is the word, the seed is the gospel. And he says what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. And he endures for a little while. He hears the gospel, it sounds good to him, forgiveness of sins, yeah, I love Jesus, makes a profession of faith maybe, kind of participates in the church, it's a a good thing, but there's no root, he endures for a while, and then when tribulation comes, and when persecution comes, on account of the word, on account of the gospel that he has professed to believe in, immediately, he falls away. I don't want this. I didn't know, it was gonna be, didn't know it was gonna be this hard. I didn't know I was gonna be this unpopular. I don't wanna be a faithful disciple anymore. And this is prevalent through the churches as we see church attendance and dropping, uh, at least in the West, in Europe and America in particular. And the call here in Revelation from Jesus is the one who receives the crown of life is the one who is faithful. Fr- friends, you and I, we, we are up against some stiff obstacles because every day you are swimming in the waters of secularism in this culture. Secularism, that, that's just this. It's just this, this assumption that God doesn't exist. That's secularism. That the Bible is unimportant that there is no transcendence that we need to be concerned about, that the only thing that matters is the here and now. That's secularism. That is prevalent throughout our culture. That is the message that is implicitly sent in our culture, in all areas of our culture. And every day that you're out working and playing and relating to people in your neighborhoods and whatever, you're swimming in those waters all the time. Now you have to swim in those waters because that's the world in which we live, so there's nothing wrong with that, but you need to be aware that those are the waters that you swim in. And when you swim in certain waters enough, you kind of forget that you're wet. And sometimes we forget, we, we live in a society that is constantly bombarding us with ideas like this. The highest good is your own personal happiness. That's the most important thing for you to pursue in your life. And some of you might be saying, well, what's wrong with that? And if that's what you're thinking, it's because you're swimming in the waters of secularism. That's a secular belief. Another secular belief, that the church and the Bible should be held in suspicion, if not in outright contempt because the church and the Bible are basically the reason for all the problems that we deal with in our world today. That's a very secular kind of view. Another secular view, science and technology are the saviors of the world. Now we like technology, we like science, we value it. But we don't look to science and technology to save us. That's what secularism does. And that's what you hear in the movies, on the news, all the time in the culture in which you live. And so I'm going to quote Dreher again here. He says, too many churches function as secular entertainment centers with religious morality slapped on top. The sad truth is when the world sees us, it often fails to see anything different from non-believers. 
Christians often talk about reaching the culture without realizing that they have been co-opted by the secular culture that they wish to evangelize. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily happening to you guys or in this church, but I gotta tell you that that's what you gotta be open to. That's what you have to be alert to. That's what you have to be sensitive to. The secular culture in which you live that sets up obstacles to the call upon our lives as Christians to be faithful to the end, no matter what obstacle is presented. We are here at the church to help you with this. That's why we exist. (laughs) That's what as elders and pastors we wanna do. We wanna help you be faithful to the end. We wanna teach you how to be disciples. We wanna walk alongside you. We wanna instruct you in the word so that you're not like the person in Matthew 13 who upon tribulation or difficulty immediately falls away. We are here for you so that we can walk in this process together and remain faithful to the end. Second thing, second thing. The church must prepare itself to endure persecution. I know you're thinking, man, this is kind of a downer sermon, but stick with me. The church must prepare itself to endure endure persecution. Look at verse nine. Jesus says this to the church. He says, I know your tribulation. Your tribulation. Um, Here's something interesting about this letter to Smyrna. As I mentioned earlier, there are letters to seven different local churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Five of those churches receive a rebuke from Jesus, but not the church in Smyrna. There is no rebuke. It's like Jesus knows that that these people are enduring something difficult, tribulation, and so he brings words of encouragement, exhortation, and comfort. So he mentions here, I know your tribulation. I know you're going through a hard time, is what he is saying. So what does this tribulation come from? Later there in verse nine, he talks about the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So apparently there were Jews who received the gospel from these Christians. They heard the gospel, but they, they rejected the gospel. But not only that, they decided that the Christians in the city were actually worthy of contempt and began to malign them and slander them and to say all kinds of negative things about them. So these Jews were opposing the movement of the gospel. And so that's why Jesus used these very strong words and says they're actually a synagogue of Satan. These are not my people. They're not really Jews. They're not my people. They're a synagogue of Satan. That's what Satan does. He opposes the spread of the gospel. And so Jesus points this out, this tribulation that's caused by slander. And the result of this slander and this tribulation is, in verse 9, again, some kind of poverty. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty... Uh, Apparently, um, they were deprived of some amount of resources because of the negative view of the Christians in the city. Uh, But he makes this point, but keep in mind, though, you are rich. That is, spiritually speaking, you are rich. So don't forget that, even though I know that you are lacking material resources. But then he goes on in verse 10 and says, you know, here's something, though, that you need to be prepared for. You're being slandered by these Jews in the city, and here's what's going to happen. Do not fear... 
Okay, that's an encouraging word. Don't fear, but here's what's gonna happen. You're about to suffer, he says in verse 10. You're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested and for 10 days you will have tribulation. So these Christians are about to be jailed. They're about to be incarcerated. We're not told exactly why, but again, it could be because of their refusal to worship the Roman emperor. And so Jesus says this is gonna be a test in your life. It's gonna test the genuineness and sincerity of your faith. And this time in prison or in jail will be for 10 days. A lot of symbolic number use in Revelation. That This probably simply means that you're going to be in jail for 10 days, meaning a, a brief time, but a limited time. It'll be for 10 days because an 11th day is coming when you won't be in jail. And, and why won't you be in jail? Well, it, it could be because you will be released. I mean, that's possible. But in context, what does it say? You may be tested for 10 days, you will be you will have tribulation, and, and then he goes on to the phrase we've already covered here, be faithful unto death. And the suggestion is what, what's gonna free you from the tribulation, what's gonna free you from prison will not actually be released, but, but your own death, your own, perhaps, execution. So, this is, the, the, this is what Jesus is telling his people. This is what's gonna happen to you. You're gonna stand, you're gonna be faithful, and, and as you're faithful, you're gonna be slandered, and that's gonna lead to you being put in, in, in jail. Now, this, this isn't told to every church of the seven churches, so th this isn't a promise that this is gonna happen to every single Christian. Uh, but it does happen to some of us. And you know, I've been telling you about the situation in, in Chengdu, China, and maybe some of you have been following this, and the church there in Chengdu that has been persecuted by the Chinese authorities. And um, I, I've been trying to keep up as much as I can. There's a, a couple of my students from there that I've been in touch with. And um, it, some of the reports out of that situation are tremendously encouraging and inspiring. You know, on the one hand, you're just really troubled that Christians cannot worship freely in that city and instead are being harassed and jailed. Um, I heard a report from um, one of the leaders of a church called Gospel Church in Chengdu, and uh, he was in jail for a little while, and he said this. He said, God gave us a great Christmas gift this year. Persecution. He said, through this persecution, God has exposed my sin in such a way that it has enabled me to repent deeper. He said, God so loved the Chinese church that he gave us persecution, he said. He says it's helped us as Christians to refocus. It's put things in perspective for us so that we see what's truly important. I mean, in China, actually, a lot of churches have very nice and big buildings, kind of similar to this. That's actually the truth. They're not all, you know, we talk about the house church there and the underground church. It doesn't mean they're worshiping in caves. A lot of them are prospering quite well. And the concern among some is that the Chinese Christians are getting too connected to their material possessions and their buildings. And so this guy is saying, this has been great being persecuted because it helps us realign ourselves and refocus on what is truly important. 
and that is our devotion and trust in Christ. He said it's unified the churches. He said a lot of the churches in China would bicker and argue with each other about secondary things. He says that's not happening anymore. We are more unified than we've ever been. This is something, going back to the the question I asked to my pastor friends, what are some issues that we need to be concerned about in the next five or 10 years? And, And many of them said, this kind of thing. Many of them said stuff like this. We, we have to be ready to be faithful in persecution. What one pastor said that leaders of the church need to prepare a generation of martyrs. Another said, teach the spiritual value of suffering. The spiritual value, how it can be a good thing. And that might sound crazy to you. I think to most Americans that sounds ludicrous. But what does it say here in the book of Acts? Remember when the early apostles were persecuted and called before the Jewish council? It says when the council had called in the the apostles, they beat them, they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, they let them go, and then the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. Rejoicing that they could be persecuted for Jesus. Now, let me be clear here, friends. This this is not an encouragement to go out and seek to suffer. There's no command of that. Nobody wants to suffer. I, I don't want to suffer. The Bible doesn't call us to seek it out, nor does the Bible call us to provoke persecution. We're not called to be obnoxious, rude, difficult people going out and getting in the faces of people inviting them to persecute us. That's, that's, there's no call in the scriptures to do that. And it could be that we won't be persecuted, but here's what it says in 2 Timothy 3.12, however, anyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 2 Timothy 3.12. So, how do we prepare for this? How do we prepare for persecution? The church must prepare itself to endure persecution. Um, So the church early reign in in Chengdu, um, thankfully many of the people who have been put in jail have been released and so we're grateful for that. Uh, There's about 21 who are still in custody including the pastor of the church, uh, Wang Yi. Uh, The church and the seminary and the Christian school, they've all been shut down. Uh, Some of the people who have been released have nonetheless had their ID cards taken, their social media accounts shut down. Uh, Some have been followed and been put under surveillance. Um, But but the good news is this, and I was told this by another of my friends. He's a Chinese guy. He lives in America, but he's been in touch with people there, and he said not one of these people have renounced their faith under all this pressure. And, And I think one of the reasons why, I mean, we give you know, glory to God and his faithfulness to them first and foremost, that's why. <laughs> but another reason why they haven't renounced their faith is because they've been preparing for this. They've been getting ready. They've been expecting it to happen. Now, it was much more likely to happen there than, than, now, than, than here, but they prepared for it and they were ready. And so when it's happened, they've been able to put forth a strong stand for Christ. And so here are some ideas I have. How can we prepare for persecution if if it were to come to us? Here are some things we should do. Number one, learn about the persecuted church. 
I mean, this is mostly foreign to us as Americans, but for many Christians throughout the world, it's not foreign at all. It's a part of their regular experience. You can go to Facebook and like this group. It's called Pray for Early Rain Covenant Church. If you just do a search for that, it'll come up, like it, and then you will get updates on what's going on there. And Every day or every couple of days, they're giving updates about what's happening there. And so a, a really good way to stay on top of that, the Voice of the Martyrs is a wonderful organization that is trying to keep the church informed about what is happening uh, in the persecuted church throughout the world. Consider persecution to be a blessing, as we've already talked. I mean, start, start kind of developing that mindset. Um, Jesus says, Matthew 5, verse 10, um, blessed are those who are persecuted on my account, he says. I mean, there is blessing in persecution. So believe that. Get that in your head and expect it. Listen, uh, excuse me, learn to love your enemies. It, it seems to me, as I think about this, one of the, my biggest temptations, I think, if somebody were to shut down our church and put me in jail, I think I'd just be so filled in my heart with anger toward that person. <laughs> I would just start thinking vengeful, angry thoughts. And that didn't seem to be the case with the apostles. It doesn't seem to be the case with a lot of the people in, in Chengdu. We as Christians are called to love our enemies, to love those who persecute us. Are you ready to do that? To love them? Start working on that now. You probably all have some people in your lives that you're sideways with for whatever reason. Learn to love them. And that'll help you to love those who persecute you. Um, devote yourself to regular fasting. And through fasting, you're denying yourself something. And if you begin to learn to deny yourself small things now, you will be better prepared to deny yourself big things later if they happen to be taken from you. That's what the practice of fasting can accomplish. And then lastly, I would say, commit yourself to the local church. Give yourself to being involved in the local church because if persecution does come and we face something like our brothers and sisters in Chengdu are facing, we'll, we will need each other terribly. We will be leaning on each other in a big way. The community of faith will become unbelievably precious to you if you're undergoing persecution. Devote yourself to the church. So, that's kind of my assessment, I mean, about where things might be going. I, I'm not trying to sound alarming here, and, and I'm not saying we're all going to be burned at the stake in 2019, or that we're all going to be in jail by the end of the year. Uh, I, I'm not saying that, but friends, even if we are, we have reason to be faithful to Jesus and to not be fearful. We have every good reason. And, and the reason why is there's one phrase I overlooked here in verse 8. These words are coming from the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. That, that's Jesus. He died and came to life. He has overcome the powers of death. He has triumphed over the grave. Our very greatest enemy and he has promised to give the crown of life to you who trust in him and are faithful to him. The life that he has accomplished in his resurrection will belong to you so that you benefit from his life and his life helps you overcome 
the penalties and power of death. That's the promise of the gospel. And this is the Jesus and the Savior who has promised to be faithful to us. Um, There's a guy named Polycarp. Strange name, I know, Polycarp. And he was a bishop in the city of Smyrna. And not long after this was written, um, this man, an outspoken Christian, suffered some of the things that I've been telling you about that was going on in, in Smyrna. And the authorities came and they got Polycarp. And they said, Polycarp, we want you to deny your faith. We want you to renounce Jesus. And he wouldn't do it. And he said, I have been serving Jesus for 86 years of my life. How could I blaspheme my king and my savior now? 86 years. That's a faithful man. And he was near the end. And by the grace of God, he wouldn't renounce his faith. And he died for his faith. He was killed. He was executed. Friends, let it be true of us in in 2019. (laughs) By the grace of God and because we have a Savior who was once dead and is now alive, let it be true of us that we face whatever comes, not with fear, but with faithfulness. We have every reason for that in the power and grace of the gospel. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, for your promises to be faithful to us. God, we don't know what the future holds, but our desire, we say as a congregation, we want to be faithful to you. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.